I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. have a sip of tea before we start i always get very like um dry mouth if you know what I mean. funny thing i i actually work at a my, my day job is uh, I, i'm a recording engineer at a recording studio that specializes in dialogue recording so uh lots of tea i, I it's definitely yeah definitely changes the the quality of the recording <laughs> is that like dialogue recordings in terms of films and stuff or like podcasts or yeah a lot of like cartoons so, you know, it used to be like half half of it used to be live action ADR. So that's like uh when something gets when like a live action TV show or film gets overdubbed. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that or if the if the producers want to add a line or like change change someone's name or something like that, then that that was our industry, but you know, live action is not there there hasn't been that much production happening in the last 6 months, so we're a lot of it right now is uh, TV animation, film animation, voiceovers, which is a lot of fun. It's definitely kept me sane throughout quarantine. Like it's it's like a nice once I'm once I'm at my day job and I get like a stack of scripts for like kids cartoons and I'm like working with actors and stuff like that. All virtually, obviously. Yeah, it, it's it's good to know that with everything happening, I can still contribute to to making kids laugh and stuff like that. <laughs> Have there been a lot more yeah. uh, like animated production starting up? Like as you've noticed, the kind of live action stuff kind of tail off a little bit with the quarantine. Has that been replaced by more animated things? Yeah, it depends on the studio and like you know, it's not like we have like a completely flat balance of of clients to begin with. You know, this I'm just like a tiny tiny cog in a giant machine of production, so I don't get I get maybe like a tiny drip of information at the end. But yeah, definitely, you know, people are trying to make it work and animation is relatively easier to do in in uh, isolation because, you know, all the actors get recorded separately anyways. Some of the studios are, yeah, starting to do production for animation more than live action. All, all good stuff, definitely. It's an interesting 
juxtaposition, you know, working in like post-production and cleaning up audio when the whole thing about house stuff is to kind of get it a little bit rougher around the edges. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, that's a good point that you raise. And, you know, I thought about it before, too. It's like, yeah, my day job, I have to focus on getting the, the cleanest sound, the cleanest mixes. Everything has to be up to spec and, you know, everything has to be labeled properly. That that's literally the job. But then, like you know, once I once I'm done with that, uh, I come home and I just distort the crap out of all my synthesizers and drum machines, and then <laughs> yeah, you get the best of both worlds. Would you say there's an art to making something sound imperfect? Yeah, it's uh, definitely a good point. Yeah, it sort of like brings me to to think about the initial appeal of making something intentionally lo-fi. If you think of music as sort of you know specific emotions and memories. Real life emotions and memories are not always like high def and crisp and you don't remember things exactly like pixel perfect, right? I, I feel like when you round off the edges of the sound, sort of t- to speak, <laughs> it, it gives a sort of a more intimate, I, I'm not sure if relatable is the, the right word, but... I get what you're saying though, it's like you're trying to recreate almost the hazy edges of a memory. Like you're trying to kind of capture yeah. that effect, but in musical form definitely so you know there there's definitely i respect producers who who make everything you know really crisp and you know those top 40s are always like got the, the mix is always crazy good on those things you know and like sonically it's like two different things um w- once you shave off sort of like the the crisp definition of it i feel like sometimes it's easier to connect with music yeah it, it always also like you know the distortion it's not for everyone i guess i i, I sometimes i'll scroll through youtube comments for the tracks that get put up on youtube and i'll see comments like why is this so distorted or like i i I wish this track had better mastering and stuff like that but they're kind of missing the point a little bit yeah there's like a i feel like there's some kind of there's like a pleasing quality to to making it intentionally like that aesthetically it's also it also feels like less confrontational does that make any sense like yeah if i'm hearing like the hi-hats and the cymbals crashing and it just sounds like they're just like right in my ears you know some people like that i i don't always feel like i need that in my life so you know it's subdued more intimate like a closer experience yeah it's more chilled out you can kind of absorb yourself in it a little bit more because it's not constantly kind of coming at you almost exactly yeah 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 it's not in your face it's you can take a deep breath and still sort of have it you know yeah (laughs) does that impact where you listen to your music then like if you're creating it in a certain setting if it's kind of softer around the edges and not being as confrontational does that kind of quality to it change depending on where you are and the kind of environment that you're listening to it in definitely you know it's it's actually a good point because my background is sort of like you know because i have like day job commitments i'm not always like out playing at clubs or I, I was never like i was more focused on production rather than like performance to begin with so you know that that that's like a huge difference right like if if you're making if you're making music that's uh that has the goal of becoming sort of like something to be played in front of a crowd of hundreds versus like a home listening experience i, I always wanted to try to make sure that it's enjoyable in both sort of contexts I'd like to think that my music can still be enjoyable even if you're if you're not in a huge crowd. If you just pop on the headphones, which is something that I can't say about all all the electronic music out there, you know. Does your music take on different contexts as well, depending on what's surrounding it? Like if you're playing a set, it'll be surrounded by other people's music as well, right? Yeah, that's a good point. When I hear my tracks come up in other people's mixes, it does definitely sound like oh, this one 
sounds a little darker. Um, I don't get too bothered by it because on the whole lo-fi spectrum, I feel like some people are doing it way more than me. I, I, I try to aim for a good balance of that, you know, just still enjoyable, still approachable, still um, some of my tracks better than others. But, you know, yeah, it's it's definitely something that I, I keep having to think about during production. Yeah, hopefully I, I, I don't turn anyone away. <laughs> Do you, I mean, when you're performing, is it the side of you that's DJing and the side of you that's making the music? Is it kind of coming from different places? Do you have to kind of tap into a different thing for each one? I think so, yeah. For my own releases, definitely. Like, well, I, actually, I was going through my in, uh, my projects folder yesterday. Just in like the, the course of like the last six months, I've started and scrapped maybe like a hundred projects. Whoa. Uh, yeah, so if, I, if I'm like making a release, I, I like to focus on shorter like singles and EPs. So that's like two or three tracks, right? Um, and I like to get sort of like the story in there perfectly in just those three tracks or two tracks. Whereas, you know, if you're DJing, you gotta, you, you get live feedback from the audience and, you know, you can sort of work off of their vibe and choose accordingly. But uh, for production, it's it's definitely a different mindset. You gotta like perfect it without that like constant feedback or, you know. Are the two or three tracks and like, well, you know, will come together to compose an EP. Are they typically written around the same time, or does it vary? Can they come from quite different periods? Generally, yeah, they're they're around the same time. It, I do have some like back and forth, and also like if if a release is in conjunction or in collaboration with other artists, and they're like obviously delays or like uh, uh, if something's going to like physical manufacturing, like vinyl, like that takes forever, right? Because it's got to get mastered, and then you got to get it manufactured. There's always delays with that. So some, sometimes, yeah, there's like overlaps and backs and forth. If you go, if you look at the releases like left to right. But yeah, generally, if I feel like something's not the same style anymore, I'll, I'll definitely, you know, I won't, I won't try to cram two things that are completely different into one release, definitely. Is it always quite apparent which tracks should go together? Sometimes it's hard. Yeah, definitely. It's not always clear. Sometimes you, you got to take a step back. You know, there there have been tracks where I, where I've worked on. The one that comes to mind is uh, "Control" from that EP that I had with uh, Computer Data. There was a time when I was so focused on trying to make that track work that I lost sight of like the overall picture of of the whole project. So I had to take a break from it and then come back to it. And uh, you know, that kind of thing is always helpful. Does that come back to that idea as well about? you know, leaving things a little bit rough around the edges. Was that you, were you overworking it or what wasn't working? How did you kind of lose sight of it? I think it was just like the overall flow. The mix was, the mix, I, I was never going to get that mix fine. I'm, I'm still not satisfied with it. There's, it's kind of all over the place. Um, the arrangement is something that I always struggle with. A lot of electronic music gets made in loop format, right? Like you're working on an eight bar loop or, or like even like a four bar loop. It's hard to transition from that into like sort of sculpting like a arrangement out of that um it's it's something that yeah it's always a huge step for me so like hundreds of projects started and scrapped most of them i, I scrapped them before i get to arrange them do you ever come back to them i i try and sometimes the ones that i didn't initially like i end up liking a, a, a couple weeks down the line some of the ones that i spend that i already invest like 10 hours into like i'll hate like a week later you know I'm sure other artists can sort of relate to that. I, I don't think when I when I speak to other artists, they they a lot of electronic artists, they always talk about 
yeah, the arrangement being sort of hurdle to to cross. For that EP with computer data as well, did you have his tracks already there? Were you kind of working off of that? Or how did that kind of come together with the three from each of you? Well, you know, we had sort of, we had talked about doing something together down the line and we weren't exactly sure what it would be. But then this opportunity came up with that with that label, uh, Eyewitness Records. I, at the time, I was sort of bogged down and I wasn't confident that I could get like a full. They wanted to do something a little longer than three tracks. And I wasn't sure if I could get that for them in, in a way that I would be satisfied with. So I just thought, yeah, I'll just invite him in because we talked about how, how similar sometimes we can get. So um, I thought this would be a great opportunity to try to work together. So we talked about some like you know, things that we could, like themes, they they weren't so concrete. In the end, I think we ended up making the music separately. At the end of the day, it, it, I think it came together pretty consistently, uh, considering, yeah. How long have you guys known each other when you made the IP together? We had just started talking. We were, like, exchanging messages on Instagram and, like, maybe a few months after we were doing that. Yeah, I, it didn't feel serious, we're we're ha- we're both having fun. I mean, I I was I was pretty happy with it. It did take a little bit of time to actually materialize. Like I said, you know, physical. It was a physical release, so there was definitely a manufacturing delay with that. But uh, yeah, I'm, overall, I'm I was pretty happy with it. And yeah, did your relationship with him, you know, change as a result of working on music together in that way? Yeah, we didn't we didn't know each other outside of the music context i think i think we we uh we started talking only about music really <laughs> uh which is kind of weird now that i think about it we, we he did visit new york uh 2019 octoberish i think that's kind of when the ep came out wasn't it yeah yeah so we we only met after finishing that i guess oh, i didn't even think about that it's good observation alex <laughs> <laughs> Was it one of those weird things when someone is quite different in person to what you expect, like over text and stuff? Because it can be, it can be weird sometimes when you first meet them you know what? in the flesh. I gotta say, it wasn't that it wasn't that awkward or anything. We just sort of we we it was great actually. He we, we met up in uh, we met up in Brooklyn. We went to our my favorite chicken and waffles joint. I don't know if you've ever been to New York. Have you been to New York, Alex? I have. Oh, 2014, 2015, a while back. Did you have chicken and waffles here? I don't think I did. Okay. <laughs> well, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just like the the super f- carb-heavy meal, just like a huge portions, you know. I, I, I don't know, like, do you have this stereotype of American meals being like huge portions of just like yeah like man versus food style (laughs) yeah yeah kind of like that so we sat down in front of a giant yeah we just got like plates of waffles and chicken and we just like sat down started talking and i i did i do remember thinking like oh i don't know that much about him yet but this is a perfect setting to get to know him a little better outside the music context and then like afterwards or on a different day, I think I showed him around a couple of uh, cool venues that I always like to go to. Um, now that you mention it, it was not like a conventional way of like getting to know someone, but in the end, it wasn't like awkward or anything. And yeah, <laughs> are you quite similar? Do you think as people? <sighs> that's a that's a tough question because maybe uh, some sometimes he's all his music comes from a much more 
directly emotional place, I think. Whereas sometimes I, I, I think, although I, I do try to strive for that, I'm, I'm not always as good as it, at it. Uh, um, a lot of my music sometimes just comes from, from imagery, you know? I'll think of a scene. For, for example, um, one of my favorite tracks that I was able to produce this year was Island After Dark, and that's, it was just a scene. I was in Japan, and I was sort of alone on a, on a, on a beach at night. And I was just, it was just like the serene scenery and it just got imprinted into my mind so heavily. And then, so, uh, but versus like Brad, I, I feel like he is, he's able to sculpt music from like very complex emotions. Uh, and there, there's sort of a difference there, definitely. Did you know when you were in that moment in Japan that that was going to be something you were going to draw from? Did you have a sense of that at the time or was it something that very much emerged upon reflection? You know what? Yeah, definitely. It felt like, it felt special, definitely. You could see lights in the horizon, just like the sound of the waves. And I saw like a couple of other people. Once my eyes adjusted to the darkness, I just saw like random people just sat down on the beach, just staring off into the distance. And it was just, yeah, it was it was something that I, I definitely didn't have a specific emotion attached to yet. But just the the imagery was just so striking to me. And yeah, do certain visuals feel synonymous with the music and the kind of sounds that you make you feel? Because I guess Mercury Vapor as well, that's another one that I'm kind of thinking of. That idea of that kind of lamp and that hazy stuff again kind of ties in with the the kind of loose edges of the music. I think so, yeah. that's. Uh, I, I, I try to sculpt the sounds from it. So, you know, I, I guess if you were, if you thought like, oh yeah, this could sound like Mercury Vapor, then I, I guess that's, uh, that means I, I was able to do it. <laughs> How does uh, how does that factor into '96 Cavalier and Herbie then the two kind of car songs? Ooh. Yes. First of all, I'm, I'm a huge car nerd. If you hadn't noticed, <laughs> Herbie actually was it's about Herbie Hancock, not not the car, but '96 Cavalier. <laughs> that's that's a story. Um, flashback, sort of like um, I, I was born in Japan, but when I was five or six, our family moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, in in the U.S. because of my dad's job. And, you know, being five, I was like, all right, let's, let's do it. You know, I, I don't have any clue of what's going on around me. Um, I had no, I didn't even, I didn't speak English. But there's like certain memories or like certain realizations about this country that I, I vividly remember. Okay, like breakfast cereal. I, I'm sure you guys have, have like similar brands like in, over in Europe, but it wasn't something that, you know, I was exposed to that much in Japan. I was like, this sugary, colorful mess, Fruit Loops, Frosted Flakes, Cookie Crisps. Uh, the cookie Crisps are just like chocolate chip cookies that you pour milk yeah, into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Beautiful. It's, it's breakfast. And five, five-year-old June was like freaking out. And everything, when I turned on the TV and go, went to like the cartoon channels and stuff like that, everything was colorful and the commercials were loud and all the kids were freaking out about all the newest toys and Everything was completely to the extreme. I'm not sure if this can coincides with sort of like your impression of, of America, but I was blown away by that. The five-year-old June was blown away by that. Uh, so where I'm going with this is my mom got a Chevy Cavalier. I don't know if you guys had that in, in, over in Europe. No, it's like sort of they're a, not too big here, kind of Chevy. It's a bit more of uh, a, yeah, an I, American I car. I mean, yeah, so the Chevy Cavalier, is, it was like a very, you know, completely plasticky interior just like not not a very you know reliable car but my, my mom got sort of like a top spec version she she had it was like a 2.4 liter engine five-speed manual 
It was pretty good. I think it. I, f I felt like it was fast sitting in the back seat. So anyway, she would like rev it so hard. She would like take it up to like the red line on first gear, skip second gear, and then just like go straight to third gear. She would like regularly leave tire marks at traffic traffic lights and stuff like that. And you know this was Michigan, so it would snow, and she would like she would pull like sick handbrake turns and stuff like that. That was me figuring out what America was at the age of like five and six and stuff like that. So you know, just combining that kind of thing with like the colorfulness of of TV and the sugariness of cereal, I, I think I got that sort of vibe in my head. Slightly nostalgic. If I remember how I produced that track, it was like starting off with those with like a warm sort of pad sounds. And then uh, th those vocals, I, I think I, I took a few vocals from like, random sample packs that sounded really poppy and in your face, and I just cut it up, put courses on it. The bass line's kind of silly. Yeah, it was. it's like a complete nostalgia trip. I don't know if the America we live in today is exactly that, or I don't even know if that America was real back then, but like that was what was kind of going through my head when I was producing it. How do those early memories that you have of America compared to your kind of first images of Japan. Do you have memories from Japan when you were kind of five and prior? Honestly, it, it's, uh, it's very, very faint. Uh, so I, I actually ended up moving around quite a bit. Um, so like I said, I was born in Japan, but when I was five or six, I moved to the US. And then after like, after five years in Michigan, our family moved back to Japan for a year and a bit. And then we moved to the UK. We were in rugby in uh Coven or near Coventry. Oh yeah. For three or four years and then um yeah, this is all because, you know, my, my dad would just get relocated. What did your dad do? If you don't mind me asking. Uh he was an automotive engineer. Uh, is that where your love for cars comes from? Yeah, and you know, it's 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 how I connected with him, you know. We would just talk about cars, talk about like yeah, racing and stuff like that. And it's sort of like the only thing we used to talk about. Like <laughs> Uh, it, it sounds it, now that I'm talking about it, it, it sounds kind of sad. We, we we talk about other things now, but some of my most memorable childhood memories with him are like car related. <laughs> I think it's nice to have something you can bond over, though. Like if you think about it, you know, some people have films where that they kind of speak a lot about with their father or music. Sometimes you had cars. Actually, yeah, he he was into my dad was into synthesizers. I didn't know until I started getting into synthesizers, but um. He experienced bubble economy in Japan. It was like when Japan was booming. And the way he described it to me is like he he bought his first computer and then he didn't know what he wanted to do with it. So he just like read up on what he could do with it. And he, he saw, oh, you can interface it with, with synthesizers and make music. And so he bought Korg M1. He bought a bunch of little modules. I forgot the names of them. but um, Were these in the house growing up? They were. They were in his office the whole time. And I... So you had no idea. He didn't let me touch them. <laughs> this sounds this sounds terrible, I know. But uh, he was also like a huge uh, guitar collector as well. Not huge, but he had like five or six, just sort of like in, displayed at any given time. And you know, we didn't directly talk about music that much. In the end, I ended up circling towards a similar circle of interest. He he never really made music or released it. Not that I know of. I mean, that was not his. I don't think that was his uh, forte, I mean. When you were growing up, you know, and you're living in all these places, does each one have quite a kind of distinct musical personality to it? Does each town have quite a distinct kind of culture that was different to the last? Yes, absolutely. I went through a, a bunch of musical phases. I'm, I'm sure we all do, and I, yeah, I'm comfortable talking about them. 
for the most part. I don't know if you know this uh, about the U.S., but electronic music is not that as widely uh, accepted in in the U.S. as it is in Europe. Any kind of electronic music gets painted as as quote unquote techno here. Why do you think that is? Why is that culturally kind of <sighs> occurring? This country has its own sort of musical culture. You know, I'm not talking about the, the coasts and the cities. That's that's more European. I guess, but if you go to like Middle America, a lot of it is like country on the radio. I feel you. Okay. So coming from that, it's understandable. You hear like a 909 hi-hat or like, you know, any kind of non-guitar slash banjo instrument. And you think, oh, electronic technology, techno. Uh, so, you know, when I moved to going back to, um, yeah. So when I moved to the UK and I heard there was quite a bit of like house music on the radio, just, you know, and that's, that's, that's popular. In in one, what year was that? It must have been like two thousand, early two thousands. Yeah, they kind of ended the nineties house scene. Kind of just bleeding in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I had it was something I'd never heard before. Actually, to be honest, oh my goodness. Yeah, my, my, one of my first, uh, one of the first electronic music acts that I really got into was the Prodigy. Oh, nice. Yeah, it was like unthinkable. Way way back, if I was like living in in Michigan. Yeah, it was it was wild. But then I, I sort of had like a weird phase where I said like I, I want to pick up a guitar. So like throughout middle school, I was like sneaking into my dad's room, like leaving fingerprints all over his guitars, and uh, I, I never took lessons. But I played the cello. I, I was the I was the Asian kid playing the cello. So I just said I just thought like okay, this is similar enough. I just cello is like vertical. I just turn it sideways, and there you go. It's guitar skills uh, automatic. Uh, at that time, yeah. So when I was living in the UK, I was like getting exposed to the Prodigy, and like I remember like even being impressed with like the Moby stuff. And then like uh, I was getting, in, and then I started wearing skinny jeans, and I started like playing guitar, and then I started to like uh, I remember like being a huge fan of uh, Arctic Monkeys and stuff like that. Too. Yeah, that must have been like the indie <laughs> boom, was it? The kind of mid two thousands, like. All yeah, those bands so kind of coming out. I got I got into that as well, and then when I moved to when I moved to Germany, I actually um, I, I I was in a band. I played the guitar in a band with with some of my friends, so that was fun. It was kind of like a mishmash of of those things because we we were uh, you know we had like the guitars and the bass and like acoustic stuff, but they let me bring in my guitar and I would just like play synth lines on top of that, and uh, that's kind of uh, when I started making music, actually, like producing, because we would just uh, one one of us got like a like an iMac and it came with GarageBand, and that that was the craziest thing for us, just like messing around in Apple Loops and like all those really cheesy preset sounds, and you know we would we just spent a couple of summers just messing around just uh making terrible sounds and here we are today <laughs> were there any other kind of moments like that growing up you know you're speaking there about getting the eye with garage band on it were there any other moments that were really kind of pivotal in your musical development in the in a similar way i, I feel like it's n- none of these changes were instantaneous it was it was like a gradual shift all, all every time so it's it's kind of hazy and you know, even even during the course of when I started doing like during the course of monolithic, I think my style has changed quite a bit. But it's never an instant like one day, the next day kind of change. It's like sort of a gradual. Okay, we're getting a few more electric pianos in. We're oh cool, we're using more and more breakbeats, but not like you know 
instant changes. So it's it's all blur. It's all blur, long story short. How long does it usually take you to notice a kind of period of change occurring? Is it something, does it have to be a little bit of space between it for you to notice it happening? Or I think it's hard to notice that kind of change happening as it's happening. Only something, it's something that definitely that I find out after the fact and down the line. Have you ever had a recurring dream? I was checking out your little playlist that you put up every week oh, prior thank you. to this. Yes and no. That kind of like goes back to my my first release as monolithic, Reset Dream. It goes into that lo-fi vibe and there's something dreamy about it, right? Nothing is crisp and in your face. Everything is sort of like a hazy is and an ambiguous kind of thing. Yeah, so the, the reason why I called that playlist recurring dreams is just like a throwback to, to that first record where I realized like this is this is a cool cool style that I think I'm gonna try to like really focus on. That playlist, by the way, I'm, um, if you don't mind me talking about it, is, is something that it, I've had a lot of fun curating. Um, I wasn't really thinking too hard about like where it was going to go. I think it was like the beginning of the year that I started this, 2020, like January. I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm not very good with, with crate digging. Finding new music is so, always sort of like a weird process for me. Sometimes I'll go like two or three months without finding a single new song that I like really click with. But then a week will come along where I'll just fill up my Bandcamp shopping cart, you know, with like hundreds of releases that I, I find. It's like, oh my God, there's so much good music out there. So I kind of wanted to smooth that out and say like, I, I have to be discovering music on a more regular basis because it's important for me to, to to listen to more music. That's it. That's all there was to it. So I wasn't expecting to to get too much of a following on it. I just thought like, okay, this is like a good way to sort of discipline myself to do it. It really warmed my heart when I when I hit that like 100 followers mark. I was like, it's interesting that people are interested in what I'm listening to. Yeah, this is 560 right now. So yeah, I it started out as something that I wasn't going to focus on. But then throughout quarantine and stuff like that, I was like, okay, I got to get... I feel like I now have a commitment to myself and to, to these 500 people. <laughs> I have to find new music. It helps my... It really helps my soul. Like when I hear something that, you know, really clicks with me, it's, it's great. There's nothing that makes me happier than like finding good music out there. It's interesting as well, you know, what you were saying there about it tying back into the, the first release dream and like what we've been speaking about with that idea of memory and kind of these hazy textures. Is that what ties into a lot of the artworks kind of being set at dusk as well? You know, that kind of period between light and dark? The pictures. Wow. I didn't even, that's a great observation. I didn't even know that about myself. Wow, great questions all around. The pictures—it's uh, something that I've all—I've uh, been sort of like—I've been get—I've been getting into like film photography, or I had been um, getting into it just when I was like starting out with monolithic, and I think the it, it sort of matched the the aesthetic of what I was going for. You know, just taking grainy photos at night, and it just fit the fit the image well. So. Yeah, that explains the the artwork. It was not something that it, it just worked out. It just worked out when I put the images to the tracks. So those all photos that you've taken yourself? Mostly, actually, yeah, all of them except for all of them except for one or two, I think. Yeah. Are you more inspired by like? I mean, the photographs are typically quite urban settings, kind of cityscapes and stuff. Yeah, to an extent. Yeah. Are you more inspired by like urban? life or the kind of natural world i'm just thinking about the planet ep as well where it's kind of taking a little bit of influence from that that's true the beach, yeah, like yeah. That, that natural environment and yeah definitely uh both inspire me pretty heavily i think you know I, i've been in new york for 
maybe like six years, five or six years now. And before that, I was in Tokyo. You know, cities, city life is city life. But New York is inspirational in, a, in its own way, I think.、Um, there, there's just so much energy here. Everyone has, everyone's hustle game is so strong. Everyone I meet here works so hard and has such like a unique vision of what they want to do and where they want to go, what they want to, to be. You know, stuff like that. And it inspires me to work harder and to work towards my own goals. So, just thinking, yeah, like going back to your question, the urban environment inspires me heavily. And New York, the people of New York inspire me heavily. Planet EP, yeah, definitely a good point. It's, it's slightly off of that trail. Yeah, it was, Planet EP was, I, I guess, like a, like a bounce back, bouncing away from that to the, to the other side. It was like, A moment in my life where I, I felt like I had a huge appreciation for planet Earth. That, that's as simple as that.、Um, it's something that, that I think about every now and then. Like, I have, I have a huge appreciation for, for the sun, for example.、Uh, it gives us all of our energy, it gives us everything that we do. Like, even burning a fossil fuel goes back to, to sunlight from millions of, hundreds of millions of years ago. And I'm not saying like I worship the sun, that's, that's not how I would word it. But I, every now and then I'll say, like, oh, we exist because, because of that. And, you know,、uh, I don't want to call it religious. And, you know, I don't like talk about it as though I need to like spread this. But sometimes I'll feel appreciation for it. And I think that's where Planet EP came from, definitely. I, I just thought about just how lucky we are to be at this perfect distance from, from the sun to, to like you know, support this much vegetation and have. Have this much vibrant life, and I was in awe of that. And you know, I think I captured that kind of in, in, the, in the music, having sort of like vibrant synth textures all around, and then having sort of like even in the arrangement, having sort of like an uplifting bit and like sort of like a dark breakdown, and then going back into sort of like the uplifting bit, like as though it was like a trip or like some kind of like flight through vibrant forests into, into like an underwater. Uh, section <laughs> and then back back above ground and like lush jungles of f- forest and fauna. Flora? Fauna? Does it give you a sense of everything being connected then? Like what you were saying there about the sun? Is that partly where that kind of love for it's coming from? Connected? How? Just everything. Like the fact that we're connected to the earth and the animals and everything's kind of as a result of this one thing in the sky. I don't want to make it sound too spiritual, but. Yes, we are connected and I'm, I'm like very appreci- appreciative of it. Does that? <laughs> so, like, going back to how I grew up, I, I was born, my, my parents are 100% Japanese and they kind of grew up closer to the countryside. So, they, have, they share a lot of like folklore, not folklore, what's the word I'm looking for? Like stories、yeah. and stuff, tales. Yeah, that, that are like very value oriented. So, for example, it's kind of, it's, now that I think about it, it's very typical. So, I, I remember like, I, I, He saw, me the, he saw me gently throw my iPod onto, onto my bed. And he said, How dare you do that? Like that, that iPod, you need to appreciate that. Every, everything has a, a right to exist. Everything almost has a soul. It's kind of like, that's kind of like,、uh, I think, how they were raised, maybe. And it kind of checks out with sort of like the Shintoism that's spread through Japan. It's like everything has a life, everything has a soul, and you got to respect. And appreciate. 
Did you find those values clashing then when you came to America, which is kind of seen as this big soulless, you know, capitalist corporate behemoth of a country? Uh, a, a little bit, actually. A, a little bit. You're spot on right there. Yeah. I, find, I think I found a good balance between the two. You know, it, it, it's something that I never thought about when I was just like growing up. But there, there are definitely parts of me that really lean heavily into, into sort of, yeah, Japanese values i guess do you find it's quite useful when it kind of comes to the the stresses that are typical of the modern world that we kind of inhabit the opposite it's terrible stress you out a little bit more like let me let me paint an example like you know right now with with covid19 happening and everything uh it's it's tough you know i'm I'm sure i'm sure if you if you keep up with the news like uh, the past wednesday the u.s hit a huge milestone and well, the terrible milestone. There were three thousand death COVID deaths in one day. That's more than the number of people who died and died on nine eleven in one day. And it's happening like every day. The reason I mention that is because the whole mask wearing thing in the U.S. I don't want to make this. Sh- I don't want to make this episode too topical. But like, there was a moment where I felt like I was losing control. I was having a hard time figuring out like why is it so hard for people to just shut up and wear a mask it's not that hard i do it all day every day because i i have i have an in-person job so you know nine to five messed up on and also on the commute hard i don't i don't feel like it's it's such a hard thing for me to do and so when i on my commutes i would see people i would see police officers without their masks and it was like completely ridiculous to me so you know that really stressed me out but then because, because you know that that's kind of who I am. I'm a, I'm a control freak, uh, so that really helped me sort of discover something that I needed to learn how to do, and that's like sort of like compartmentalizing what I what I can control, and then what I can't control. I, I'm not going to go around telling everyone who's not wearing a mask to to wear a mask. That's completely impossible. That's as maddening and as as heartbreaking as it is me stressing out over it does not contribute to any kind of change in that so i think there was a moment when i just had to sort of you know calm down and take a deep breath and say like you know i have to figure out what i can control and help out in that way uh so you know whether that's like donating to organizations that i think will has organizations that have the means to to change the world in better ways and stuff like that not directly by me yelling at people does music help for you on a personal level when you're in situations like that because that's something you when you're creating it you have complete control over it can it kind of help to counteract it and balance it out a little bit for you internally yes uh, i think you understand me very well now alex making music for me is it, it's like a safe space for me if you think about it you know if you look if you open any of my project files you'll instantly see it I have like hundreds of lanes of automation. So like micro adjustments to volume levels and all of the elements throughout the track. And I have complete control over it versus if I were like working in a band, I don't, I wouldn't have control over what the drummer is doing or stuff like that. But when I'm making music, I, I have complete control over it. If I want, you know, if I want the kick drum or if I want the clap to, to happen like half, half a beat, like later than than I needed to, I have it's just like three clicks. It's complete control for me, and um, it's something that 
I find gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, was that something you noticed emerging quite early on? Like, did you struggle with not being fully in control when you were playing in that band in Germany as you were kind of growing up? No, at that point, I didn't have that much of an issue with that because at, at that point, I didn't have that much of an issue with that. But it's something that uh, I, I just feel, you know, once I sit down in front of my workstation and I have everything within my reach and uh, I can just sort of uh, stream of consciousness sort of figure out a way to put my thoughts down onto paper and have complete control over it it was just it's not like something that came out of uh feeling frustration from working with other people but it's something that i definitely couldn't live without at this point (laughs) we were speaking earlier as well about how you know both yourself and computer data your music is spawned as a result of kind of tapping into these emotions these kind of quite intense and often kind of intricate and complex emotions was there a moment for you when you realized that those emotions were worth taking seriously and expressing in music? That's a, an, another great question. Um, a, absolutely. I think that that was one of the realizations that I think was important to me to sort of like make the kind of music that I make right now. Um, way back when I was starting out with production, I was focusing more on the gear it was now that i think about it it's it was not so intimate because i would be comparing which compressor should i use or or like which uh audio interface is going to give me the clearest output for my headphones or you know should i be using this digital thing or the analog version of it that kind of decision was sort of the driving force between like my production curiosities like i was doing it to satisfy that kind of exploration when i listen to the tracks that i was making back then it's it's really apparent everything is sort of like on the grid like i never physically inputted anything on the on the piano controller or the midi controller it was all robotic in a sense and i was just trying to do technical things and it was i wasn't i wasn't clicking with it myself I think that was a turning point for me, sort of like figuring out music is not about that. Like that's peripheral. It's important, sure. You know, you got to maintain good game structure and you got to like keep your sessions organized and whatever. Sure, that's that's important too. But it's peripheral to that. Shouldn't be the main focus of of music production. And I think once I realized that and I started to sort of you know really focus on. Instead of like, you know, making complex chord sequences just for the hell of it, I, I would think like, what kind of, what kind of story do I want to tell with it? What kind of emotions do I want to invoke? What kind of like, what, what am I thinking about myself? You know, I think even, even in, in the monolithic stuff, I, I find that uh, even between Reset Dream, my first EP and Alone With You EP, my second EP, I think even between those two, there's like a huge difference. Like when I was doing reset the reason why i call it reset was because like i'd been mu- making music for two years without any releases at that point i had like just shut down my last project and i was like not releasing anything for two years and i got so anxious about what i was gonna do next and like it was it was it became ridiculous so i just like one day i just got fed up with myself and i just thought i have to face this anxiety i gotta close my eyes and just hit release on, on Bandcamp and just put it up on streaming services. And I think that that was more of like a technical, like I got to start this kind of thing. 
but then like once I figured once that once I realized that people were listening to that, then I had a chance to sort of like for for alone with you EP. It was like I had that relief. I had a chance to sort of like calm down and think about like what music meant for me, what I what I the emotions that I wanted to convey. So that moment, yeah, really really turned my productions around. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 